KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org. I am Nick Burns. Welcome to Radioactive. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is, of course, your show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. And we're on every weeknight at 6. Tonight on the show... The Disability Law Center of Utah, uh, they've documented and they've been working on this history of how Utah actually used to be number one in forcibly sterilizing people with disabilities. Um, Pretty interesting given the way the legislature is moving now to ban abortion when back in the day we led the world in forcibly sterilizing people. That's on the show tonight. We got a crowd to talk about that. It's going to be great. Plus, Utah Teacher of the Year, John Arthur, he's joining us with some of his students and their latest project, How Are the Children? We'll play the tape and we'll talk to a couple of the students and we'll talk with John. Going to be a great conversation. But first, to get there, we got to do rallies and resources. Yes. Laura Jones. Hi. Hi. So, how was the uh, drive-in? Because you live higher up than I do. Was, oh. The storm was supposed to come in, wasn't it? The storm was supposed to come in. There was a few flurries at my house. Yesterday was huge snowdrifts. They didn't plow out my neighborhood till the afternoon. Uh, my little pile of snow off my tiny deck is now higher than me when I shovel off the deck. <laughs> and I'm not super tall, but still. Uh-huh. Kind of hard to shovel the snow. But getting around today pretty easy. Well, you know, all the snow we have received, Mother Nature's bounty, lawmakers are taking it as a sign that they can hold off on certain things about the Great Salt Lake. And just a heads up, tomorrow night, Salt Lake Community College Rising Journalists will be taking over the show, and I know that is on their agenda to talk about. And you have to wonder about the timing where mm-hmm. yesterday they announced they're going to do some releases of water. So watch out. Some of the creeks coming down out of the canyons are going to be running high. And then the very next day, the legislature's like, well, we've got lots of snow. We don't need to do squat. Timing. Mm. Timing's everything. Mm. Looking at rallies and resources, folks, play along with us. Go to krcl.org. Click on Community Affairs, and you'll find our rallies and resources page. We still have the bill trackers for a variety of organizations, from the ACLU to the Y. Heal Utah to the Utah Farm Bureau, League of Women Voters of Utah. Uh, They've got each a unique perspective on the legislative session, and it's easy to track bills that might align with your interests in that regard. So go and check out that list. Today is the start of Women's History Month, and going on at 7 o'clock at the City Library downtown, Tessman Auditorium is Black, Bold, and Brilliant, and they are screening Beba, and then they have a Q&A via Zoom with the director of the film, Rebecca Hunt. Do check that out. You can get on down there. Uh, they wanted an RSVP, but they will take you if you yeah. walk through the door and there's a seat. So 210 East, 400 South. I put the wrong address. I'm just realizing. <laughs> Typo. Oh. But uh, yeah, so go head on down there. Tomorrow, it is Women's Week keynote up at the University of Utah with Feminista Jones, a feminist writer, public speaker, community activist, and retired social worker, twice named one of the top 100 most influential people in Philadelphia and named one of the top 50 feminists in the world. 
Feminista Jones is a feminist thought leader and social media influencer honored for online activism. It's a hybrid event, folks. So go and check out this listing in Rallies and Resources and get the details so you can join virtually or attend in person at the J. Willard Marriott Library tomorrow at noon. Also tomorrow, the Tanner Humanities Center, we had Professor Erica George, who leads the center on last night. They're celebrating 35 years, and they're doing an Author Meets Readers conversation with Britt Ray. And Britt Ray is a human and planetary health postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Center for Innovation and Global Health, Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, and London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. But uh, the book... Um, Generation Dread that she's going to talk about is just fascinating. We got a preview last night. You can check out uh, the show from last night at krcl.org. But Generation Dread, I know that that's a lot of what the community college students have been addressing, too, is this kind of eco-anxiety that a lot of our young folks have. And you wonder why colleges and high schools need more therapists, need Mm -hmm. more counselors. Oh, we just need to take social media away from them. (laughs) I'm not sure where that's fallen with Utah lawmakers, uh, by the way. Right. And, of course, there's no uh, – that that huge, <clears throat> fairly scandalous piece in the New York Times that sort of launched that panic doesn't talk at all about, you know, young boys who bully and harass or sexually abuse young girls. It's just we need to watch out for the young girls. And here in Utah, well, we'll take their phones. Yep. That's really going to help. Social media. Ugh. And I, you know, I'm conflicted because the I've, I'm not a parent myself. I have a rugby team size of nephews and nieces, <laughs> uh-huh. and I look at what they've gone through, especially with the pandemic and the social isolation, which is already part of you know going through that crucible of adolescence, right? Um, and you layer on the pandemic. Um, I just, you know, I do. I worry about them. But is social media the answer? Taking it away, rather. In fact, one of our upcoming students tonight. Um, their nickname's Bro. In the video, she says, you can't protect us, but you can prepare us. Exactly. And again, this discussion about young people, whether they are male or female, but especially many young girls who seem potentially incredibly influenced by social media, it seems like what we ought to be doing is teaching media literacy. If you just say no, I mean, I remember when they just banned smoking for us young people, and what did we all go do? Right. We'll smoke under the gym bleachers. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Yes. So saying no isn't going to work. Nancy Reagan tried that with drugs. Didn't help. Earlier today at noon at the Utah State Capitol, members of the Utah Reproductive Roundtable met to talk about the impact of HB 467 in particular. That is the big abortion omnibus bill. And I have a bit of the conversation from that press conference to share with you. And we're going to start with Annabelle Scheinberg of Planned Parenthood Action Council of Utah. The Repro Roundtable is a convening of Utah-based individuals and organizations who are committed to intersecting aspects of sexual, reproductive, health, rights, and justice. Um, I want to say about the bill that restricting rights for nearly 3,300 Utahns who access abortion care makes people who can get pregnant second-class Utahns. Today is the first day of Women's History Month, and Black History Month ended yesterday. Policies like HB 467 impact women and people who can get pregnant differently based on our identities. We know that BIPOC people, people with disabilities, people who lack access to transportation or have limited ability to travel due to their family situation or employment 
will be harmed by this bill. As James Baldwin said, history is not the past, it's the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. So my name is Jess Sanders. I am a reproductive health researcher and a member of the Repro Roundtable. In December of 2022, the Ascent Center for Reproductive Health, in partnership with a Utah-based nonpartisan consulting group, conducted an age and geographically representative population-based survey of 1,200 Utahns to better understand individuals' knowledge, experiences, and attitudes around abortion and reproductive health. So I'm just going to go through some key findings from that survey. 52% of respondents believe that there should be no government involvement and that decisions about whether to have an abortion should be left up to a patient and provider and their provider. Less than a quarter of respondents said that the state should determine these laws regarding abortion. Most Utahns believe that abortion should remain legal to some degree, with 23% indicating in all cases, 19% until viability, which was the Rose standard, and 19% indicating some earlier gestation with broad exemptions. Two-thirds agree on, or strongly agree that both physical and mental health exemptions are important in abortion policy. Finally, there was overwhelming support for state investment in other reproductive health care services. Three quarters of respondents agreeing or strongly agreeing that states that restrict abortion should invest in other services that expand contraceptive access, as well as prenatal care and postpartum coverage. The majority support held across counties, political and religious identities. So these findings highlight the differences in what most Utahns think and want and the abortion restrictions that we're seeing here in, in our state. Additionally, it highlights the support across the state for investment in broader reproductive health services and coverage. Local data, provider ex expertise and experience, and most importantly, the communities that are most impacted understand the importance of ensuring that individuals have access to the reproductive health services, including abortion care and comprehensive contraceptive coverage and resources to have healthy pregnancies. So that is a critical part of what we're seeing here. And I'm excited to have these data in hand and to inform the conversation more. And that's Jessica Sanders, a member of the Utah Reproductive Roundtable and also from Ascent Center for Reproductive Health at the University of Utah. She's doing the data. And I saw uh, on a post under the, the live Twitter feed that they did, someone saying, most Utahns don't support abortion. What do you have to say about that? Well, people are cherry picking data. That's some great data to take yeah. into the conversation. Nick. And pretty straightforward, two thirds of folks in Utah favor exemptions from anti-abort from abortion yeah. bans based on mental health and physical health of the mother. So a bunch of white guys older than Methuselah getting to make decisions for women. It I'm sure rankles women even more than it rankles me. Uh, okay. I'll put the link in the show notes for that press conference if you want to go check it out yourselves later, folks. But uh, now a preview of International Women's Day coming up a week from today. Yes. Here on KRCL, and I sat down with the planners on this KRCL celebration. You know, we broke the Capitol with Lucius a couple years back. Uh, this year, we got uh, Women Who Rocks, Eugenie Hero Jaffe, and Morgan Keller to tell us what's in store. Here we go with Eugenie talking about what's going to happen a week from today. Traditionally, KRCL has uh, always done uh, a big celebration for International Women's Day, and we're doing it again this year. We're giving up the day uh, from 6 a.m. 
p.m. to 7 p.m. Every female host here at KRCL is going to come in and guest host one hour at a time, bringing their favorite songs by women artists. And it's just a super fun day, Laura. It's great to hear all of our hosts all together on air um, all throughout the day. And then in the evening, you and Morgan have been conspiring on something pretty cool. Morgan and I have been conspiring. We're going to be doing the first ever Women Who Rock Trivia Night at Mountain West Hard Cider. Yeah, it's going to be a great way to end the evening of all femme voices and music with uh, some femme trivia. We're really excited. <laughs> Eugenie's cooking up some uh, really difficult questions over there. So I'm trying not to make the questions too hard, accessible, but still challenging. You right, know can what we I mean? get a sample or two of a question? Um, no, because I haven't written them yet. I'm working on it, Laura. <laughs> I'll tell you this. If you listen to Women Who Rock at 12 o'clock, you probably do fine for the trivia. All right, I'm just going to throw one out there because okay. it's, it's so basic. I feel like you're not going to use this one. Okay, let's see. Which Icelandic singer was known for dressing in a swan costume? York. There we go. Beep, 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 beep. Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. And actually, there's a visual There's a visual component. Yeah, there's too. a visual component. That's what we've kind of been playing around with here. It's, uh, it's going to be so much fun. So grab all of the women in your life that you're friends with, everyone, you know, all those music lovers in your life, you know, really stack the deck in your favor by putting together a team uh, and bring all of your music loving friends down to Mountain West Hard Cider a week from tonight uh, and join us in some trivia. And Mountain West has been so cool. They've got this big space, you know, you walk in and it's a small tasting room and then there's this larger space in the back and they were so generous and said, yes, please have Women Who Rock Trivia Night here. Women helping women. We love know, to see a- it. They're a women-owned business. Uh, we love them. They're just down the street from our station. Uh, so we're happy to be hosting this event there. So you can have some cider and enjoy a drink while you, you know, have some trivia. Now, yeah. this isn't women only, but it is 21 plus. That's right. You do have to be 21 and over. There's going to be prizes. So our friends from Planned Parenthood are going to be there. They're going to be offering up. They made these really cool uh, fanny packs during Sundance, and they're going to be gifting some of those to us. We're also going to be having tickets to shows. We're going to have Women Who Rock swag and Egyptian theater gift cards all as part of uh, prizes. I understand there are going to be some extra creative posters oh, with our yes. National Women's Day logo designed by. Yeah, Courtney Blair made these beautiful images and Morgan and I got so excited about it. Morgan had a great idea. They just totally inspired us. You look at this beautiful image of the woman with her flowers in her hair. And we just thought, you know, let's put some posters out there. So you will be able to buy a poster at the event or win one if you are particularly good at trivia. And uh, they'll have some fun little slogans that we've come up with here. All proceeds, of course, go to KRCL to help us in our mission. And they are collectible, folks. And yes. I don't want to, you know, give away the, uh, the sp- I don't want to spoil it. But there's one in particular I might have to buy a couple and send around the globe. There's one slogan for sure that really hits home for me, but I definitely can't say it on the radio. It's a good one. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment. Okay, so we've got International Women's Day a week from today, 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., all uh, KRCL women coming in, plus some special guests to spin records. That's right. Uh, the CityCast team are coming in. So uh, CityCast, a great local po- podcast that is uh, 
produced by three great local women. They uh, We invited them. They're going to do an hour at 4 o'clock. They'll be on air. We're going to have some live music, too. Who are you going to have? Little Moon is going to be in studio doing uh, a live session with me. I think the 11 o'clock hour, I'm going to be doing a local Women Who Rock hour from 11 to 12. I'll be doing a Women Who Rock power hour. But then we'll also have all of our women DJs. Um, and then you've got live music, too, on Radioactive. That's right. We're going to have Mel Soul as our featured artist, plus a panel of music makers from the women behind O-Foam to a couple in our community that make music together and uh, create a fabulous life. We're going to have this great conversation about music makers, so be sure to tune in all day next Wednesday. Congratulations on another fantabulous International Women's Day, Eugenie and Morgan. Well, it's it hasn't happened yet. It's a week from today, so I can't wait to invite all of you all to join with us. You know, it's for women who rock and those who love them, so come and join us. And Morgan, where can people find out more? Uh, they can go to krcl.org and find all of the information about the event. You can also check us out on our socials and uh, join in some of the hype. KRCL membership manager Morgan Keller and Eugenie from Middays and Women Who Rock. $10 tickets at the door a week from tonight at Mountain West Cider, but tune in starting at 6 a.m. a week from today for all the great programming and music that we'll bring to you on the air. It's a longtime tradition here at the station to have that day, and mm. I think that's pretty pretty cool. And now we got some music created by the students, sixth grade students of Meadowlark Elementary, their teacher, John Arthur. A couple of students are here, Nick. You took a listen to this, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone in all <clears throat> the conservative legislatures nationwide who are busy throwing around words like woke and CRT and, oh, my God, we can't let white kids be offended if they could hear how smart these kids are yeah. and how much they already know and how much better we could wake we could make we could wake the world but we could also make the world a better place and i think that's what john arthur sixth grade teacher and utah teacher of the year from a couple of years ago they put this video together we'll play the video and then we've got him and some kids on the that's show that's right and it's an arcade fire cover wake yeah. up and it basically john says when he posted this on twitter children today are facing challenges the world has never seen before and adults don't always know how to help what can we do great first step listen to our kids and that's what you're going to hear right now on KRCL. Why do you think adults are afraid of teaching you about hard things? Because they think we're not ready, but we are. We were watching the news the other day, and we saw this story on kids and social media. People keep saying that kids are depressed. Why do you think that is? The world is scary. COVID-19. Social media. Maturation. Not admitting when I'm hurting. My eyes were red when I cried, but I just said I was on my phone too much. There are more ways to bully kids than there used to be. You used to just punch somebody or kick them, but now there are so many ways people can hurt you. I don't want that for myself. Something filled up my heart. What do you think adults are worried about? With nothing. I think adults are just afraid of what we're going to learn. You can scar them for life with things they're not supposed to know. Told me not to cry. I think they want to protect us from awful things and bad information. Still, it makes no sense. What do you mean? Now that we're kids. We're curious. I'm older. We're still learning all these things just without support. My heart. If you tell us there's something we shouldn't know, we'll go out and find the worst version of it. And I can 
The world's more complicated now. Say that it's a lie. We have access to all information and each other anytime we want. It's here on our phones. It's hard for adults to help us because no one's ever grown up with this. Maybe the problem is that you want to prepare us for the world as it was when you were a kid instead of the world as it is today. What should we be teaching you then? How to argue without getting angry. Teach us to have disagreements without freaking out. We needed to teach us how to talk about hard things. We just need adults we trust to share the truth with us. Children, wake up. Hold your mistake up before they... Is school the right place to be talking about these tough things? ¿Dónde más se supone que debemos aprender a ser del mundo un lugar mejor que en la escuela? If that's not the point of school, then what is? If the children don't grow up, our bodies get bigger, but our hearts get torn up. This is school. This is where we're supposed to learn hard things and then use what we learn to fix problems. School is supposed to make you more successful, right? School is where we learn to be leaders in our community. We need people to tell us what's wrong and why it's wrong so we can fix it. Teach us scary things where it's safe in our classroom. It's like that story we saw about students not being able to read certain books or talk about certain things because they're scary. Teach us. Guide us. Believe in us. You can't protect us, but you can prepare us. If I'm not taught about global warming, that won't stop the globe from warming. I think it's healthy to recognize that some of the world's problems come from here. Why? Because then we can do better. It's overwhelming, but we'll figure it out. We have to make social media the solution, not the problem. Now the whole world is connected and all of us can stand up and learn together. We have more tools than any generation before. We're the most likely to solve the world's biggest problems. Any last thoughts? Wake up to the pain in yourself and others. Help others find some joy. ¿Qué pasa si somos los héroes que hemos estado esperando? KRCL amplifies the work of community nonprofits like Comunidades Unidas, an organization that fights to build the social and political power of people who identify as Latinx immigrants, including undocumented folks living in Utah. More details at cuutah.org. Support for Radioactive comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Love Promise Community Commitment, a partnership with nonprofit organizations that aim to make the world a better place. More information about the Love Promise and Subaru products at markmillersubaru.com. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. That was How Are the Children, a video put together to Arcade Fire by John Arthur and his sixth-grade students at Meadowlark Elementary. John Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Teacher of the Year from, what, two years ago? Yeah, it feels like a lifetime. Yeah, I'm sure it does. (laughs) Teacher of the Year in the middle of the pandemic. But sixth grade, it sounds like this is is your wheelhouse. You love this age. Not everybody does. No, it's true. Usually when I tell people I teach sixth grade, they, they say, oh, my gosh, you're such a saint. How, how amazing. And I love it. They, these are children who are at the crossroads trying to determine what kind of person they're going to be 
what they want to do with the rest of their life. And this is the moment when I love to just influence in some positive way, send them on a better path. Very good. Because I think for parents, most of what you impart on your children in terms of honesty or how you get mm -hmm. along with people or good or ill ways to behave is probably done by about this, about this age. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> so let's bring in students. Mo, hi. Hello. How you doing? Good, and you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Let's pass that mic over. And bro, how are you? Hi, I'm really good. Good. What's it like to be here on the radio? It's honestly really... It makes me nervous. Yeah. If someone was on the radio, it would make them nervous too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, some. when we're off the air, I'll tell you how nervous I was my first time doing this show. Pretty freaky. Um, I used to work for newspapers, right? So I could just write and then I had to talk to people. Oh, my God. But here we are. So, bro, I'll start with you since you got the mic. This line you said in, in the video is just fantastic. You can't protect us, but you can prepare us. How would you like to be prepared? What would that look like for you? Um, being prepared, um, what I mean by you can't, you can't protect us, but you can prepare us. You can prepare us for hard things, hard times, and yeah. Hard times, and certainly you guys have been through that. I mean, trying to do school from home, trying to be back in school, all these anxieties that are floating around. How do you think that changes when you're with your friends at school as opposed to when you're not at school? Is it something you kind of share, those anxieties? No. Not so much? No, not so much. Uh. So, Mo, I want to ask you something here. A line that you said in the video, we have more tools than any generation before. I'm guessing you're probably too young to have Facebook and TikTok and whatnot. Yeah. But you have all these tools. Tell me about the tools you do have. Um, I have, well, I wouldn't say social media because Snapchat, Facebook, and Twitter is social media. Plus, you can still, like, search up things on, like, YouTube and other necessities that are on your phone. And mostly, you could um, find them, and then ki you some kids would find it and show it to you. Then you might show it to someone else and end up spreading the thing around school or wherever. And what do you make of all this move you see some people want to just ban social media for kids. you think that could work? Mm, well, mm, it probably because, well, yes, because if we ban it, not a lot of, well, if we ban social media, they would, well, they might change back to how they were. Yeah. They might get worse. Well, the, the tentative idea is to ban social media for young people. So mm -hmm. if you're over 16, it'd be fine. My concern would be if you tell little kids they can't have it, that's the first thing they'll go get. I don't know if you're like that. I was. Your parents, <laughs> do they have a rule that you, you can't get on social media or only with them? Uh, I, I can't have Snapchat, Facebook, or huh. Instagram, or Twitter, or anything like that. Do you have fr <laughs> some friends that do have it? Yeah. Of course. And so when you see each other, parents aren't around, lawmakers yeah. aren't around. John, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing you have conversations about social media use and, and what people can have access to and what kind of problems that might create for kids. Constantly. We have uh, parent-teacher conferences this week at Metal Arc Elementary, and this is my 10th year in the classroom. I remember my first year, I never had to talk about... Hmm. 
make sure your kid is going to bed, not staying up all night on TikTok or whatever else. And also, please monitor their use of Snapchat because that's where so many of the fights that are breaking out in school are starting on social media the night before. There's the group chats. The kids will like show up in the morning and like, oh man, you don't know what happened. I'm like, I, you're exactly right. I, I don't know what happened. And it also didn't happen in the physical world. Can we Can we agree not to have conflicts between us right now because of something that some child said at two in the morning when their brain isn't fully developed and they're over exhausted oh. and come on please at these parent teacher conferences are parents receptive to the message that you're trying to give them about this they are but at the same time a lot of parents i think feel a little bit powerless they they look at social media like the weather you can only control it so much the storm's still going to come rolling in, right? And so they'll say, I take my, my child's phone away or I block access to whatever it is, and they will still find a way to get onto those programs. And we see the same thing at school. Just in, in my own class, we have all these filters and all these blockers for, for student use. They can't get onto YouTube, whatever else, but they always find a way they'll figure out that if you just go to google and you google up a thing <laughs> and then like the 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 option for the video shows up in google if you just play it there it will play and so they know well, oh, what bro is, is correcting it grab yeah, the mic bro, bro. What, what's this trick you guys do so this trick we do is well we search it up and then there's this um, there's this thing in the right corner. <laughs> ah, the preview panel. <laughs> the top like the suggested right ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you click on it, and then it just shows you the video. Yeah. You can play it. See, exactly. Huh? And that's just the that's the predicament we adults find ourselves in. We don't understand fully this world that the kids are growing up in, but they are natives to it. Right. And so they know all the tricks. So no matter what we do, they will find a way around. So as the students say in the video, the best thing that we can do is just try to to teach them lessons in a supportive environment where we can tell them this is why we want to not just like prevent or, or detract you, but this is why we want you to wait until you're older, yeah. until your brain develops before you do these things. And please, let's just be partners in this. Don't go around us. I mean, this, it, what you're describing is, and I hate, to, I hate to reveal my age, but, you know, we've had so many moral panics, video games, mm -hmm. Uh, Rottweiler dogs, sure. pit bulls, mm -hmm. Elvis Presley's hips, mm -hmm. the Beatles' long hair, um, and it seems like kids have survived all of those. So what you're talking about, maybe actually teaching media literacy, is going to be better than saying, oh, don't you do that. A thousand um, percent. I know my own children, I'll just say real quickly, when they were about your age, Mo and Bro, they complained to me bitterly that all their friends had televisions in their room. And they were like, well, why can't we have TV in our bedroom? And I said, well, your friend's parents, you know, are, are they media scholars like your dad is? <laughs> and right. then they would look down at the ground and, well, no. Dad's and I'm like, well, media that, yeah. scholar. So, but, but again, you've said you've had 10 years in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You're now having this that you never had to do before. Yep. Where, do, where does this come to you? How do you learn how to do something new? The same way that, you know, bro was just able to honestly talk about this way that they manipulate the technology. She's able to do that because we have a relationship. We're, we're not just adult, child, not just teacher, student. We're, we're partners in our classroom. I take care of them. They take care of me. And, and by treating them with dignity and as, as, as partners in their own learning, 
they will they will keep me up to date on all the coolest hippest things and i will be able to impart upon them some bit of knowledge that i've picked up along the way to keep them safe is this why you earn teacher of the year because you're you're straight out of you know pedagogy of the oppressed mm. you teach by learning and you learn by teaching yeah i think i'm 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 teacher <laughs> of the year because my students have done incredibly dope things over the years <laughs> and made awesome work because I have, I have, I've framed them not as content consumers, but content creators. Okay. I was going to say that's part of the lesson yeah. here too: is yeah. to understand the medium mm-hmm. and be leading on the conversation as mm-hmm. opposed to reacting or just consuming it. Yeah, and this, and again, this is a YouTube piece. People can go watch it. That's right. So tell me how you and Mo. I guess I'll ask you first. How did this come about that you all got to make this video and put it on YouTube? Oh well. It all started with the social media. With learning about social media? Mm, it's mostly, it's dangerous. Some kids pose, well, that like, like Arthur said, there's fights, and that's how a lot of things start to happen. Some kids from social media, they get bullied, and uh, some kids commit suicide, and other bad things that they, the kids send to them. So how does it feel for you that you are now, and I'll use the phrase, you're a creator, you're a content creator. You're not just receiving social media. In this case, you made it. That's got to be different. You're an influencer. (laughs) (laughs) Did you enjoy making the video, Mo? Yeah. Okay. Because it showed how social media, how how a lot of social media can be bad or good. Well, mostly bad, though. You um, raise a really good point. It can be good or it could be bad. It depends who's using it and how you use it. Mo, what do you think? Bro, excuse me, what do you think? What do I think about what? Sorry, what do you think about question? this notion of how you got to be a creator rather than just a receiver of information? You made social media content. Oh, honestly, I never thought I would make like content until I was in captain's class. What would you call your teacher? Captain. Captain. That's his nickname. <laughs> okay. It's true. All of the kids from kindergarten all the way up, they call me Captain. Wow. When I was a teacher, nobody called me Captain. My, Whoa. My, it's my second <laughs> class. They named me, and everyone, all the adults always ask me, is it, oh, like Captain, a, dead poet? Is it a dead poet? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, these kids have never seen dead poet society. It has nothing to do. It's, it's an anime reference that my oh. second class oh. one. But yeah, we all have nicknames, and part of that is... There's a there's a safety piece to to putting kids on the internet, mm-hmm. right? And so all of my kids, my starting with my second class, they came up with nicknames. It was a fun thing. But as they became content creators, and it became important to maintain their anonymity, even mm-hmm. as we put out their their likenesses and their their voices, keeping their names uh, separate from the work uh, was really important to the parents in yeah. our community. And so now the now the nicknames for survey a, 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 a really protective function. Yeah. But, I mean, there you're doing two things at once. You're helping the kids protect themselves, Mm -hmm. but there's an educational component to that at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So what is next? Yeah. And, of course, the Twitter feed is ninth evermore, right? Twitter, uh, Instagram, all the the different platforms, the number nine, TH evermore. And why is that? You know what? I cannot tell you. And ah. and I'll tell you, there in our classrooms we get to create the worlds that we want to live in. And all I can tell you is that our world is called Ninth Evermore. Okay. There's, there's a long tradition and anybody out there who's ever been in a classroom with the name Evermore on the wall knows what the story is, but everybody else it's it's just for us. You oh gotta, a little you secret. Be in a little the club. Little uh, so bro, what's yeah. next? You gonna make another video? Yeah. 
Probably in a few months. Well, right now they they're just finishing up filmmaking. Okay. They, they've made short films. These two just made a documentary. What'd you make a documentary about? We made a documentary about um, students with disabilities. Will you come back and share that? We'll do a whole show. Bring in some more yeah. folks. Yeah. And now next they're going to try podcasting. That's Our, the, that's well, the next we want to share the podcast. Yes. Say, absolutely. <laughs> Bro, Mo, thank you so much. John Arthur, thank you so thank much. You we'll put for links having us. in the fantastic. show notes. Stick around. Disability Law Center coming up next. And I thought, of course, given our conversation, I've got to go with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Little teacher children on KRCL 90.9. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. Democracy Now! rolls at 7, so keep it tuned with Amy Goodman. Rude Awakening with Liz at 8. Maximum Distortion. Get your heavy metal on with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30. And a brand new day every weekday morning with John Florence. That's at 6 a.m. So keep it tuned to your community connection. Next up on the show, uh, I don't know how to get into this topic. It's a difficult topic that, that Utah was one of the leading states for decades in forcibly sterilizing people. And now that this news has come out, what do we do with it, and where do we go? So we've got three folks here to talk about it. Nate Krippis, hi. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You are the supervising attorney at the Disability Law Center? I, yes, I'm a supervising attorney there, yes. Thank you. And you're also up on the Hill doing some lobbying? Yes, yes. So we, I want to ask you when we get into it about this notion of could we expect anything from our legislature because these were the guys who passed these bills and edited some of the bills and kept doing this work for decades. So I, I, I'm almost at a loss as to how to get into the subject because it's just fairly horrible. Jim Tabory, hi. Hey, good to be with you. Philosophy professor, and a professor, I should say, in the Department of Philosophy up at the U. That's right. And in your classes, you make philosophy very real world, and this notion of philosophy of medical ethics is definitely something your students are getting immersed in. That's absolutely right. I, I think philosophy at its best uh, is the kind of thing that people can take with them out there in the world, and, and we try to make that happen at the U. And how's, I mean, I don't want to speak to your ability in front of the classroom, because I was chatting with you before the show, and I wanted to come and take your class. But I presume, and I'll go out on a limb here, that students probably really appreciate that when you make it sort of here and now today, not just all Nietzsche and you know, Socrates. I certainly hope so. No, <laughs> nothing against the Socrates yeah. scholars. Uh, uh, but it, my sense is they appreciate that opportunity to make it practical. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Andrew Riggle, you're a policy advocate at the Disability Law Center. You're with us by Zoom. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. And I'm not sure where to start on this topic, but I guess we should get into some numbers. So, Nate, come back to you. We're talking, what, close to 1,000 people forcibly sterilized by the state of Utah over the decades? Uh, Jim would know better than me, but it's 830 was the estimate that I think we saw um, okay. from their report. Can know. we trust that, Jim, is an accurate number? We can certainly, we can say 830 men, women, and children we can confirm were sterilized. Uh, that's sort of the, the, the low number. It could have gone up from there. Um, the bill was passed in 1925. We know where the, there were some sterilizations that happened before that that we didn't include in the study because those weren't what we called state-sanctioned sterilizations. Um, uh, and, and there are probably sterilizations that happened that just 
weren't sort of yeah. recorded in that way. But we can tell you for certain that 830 people were sterilized. And we're talking about forcibly sterilizing people <clears throat> back in the days before penicillin. I mean, <laughs> what was the death rate of people who didn't live through the procedure, I wonder? Uh, there's no evidence that the procedure itself uh. was particularly dangerous. I think, you know, in, in hindsight, most of the concern is about the reproductive rights being taken away from these people. Um, uh, you know, they were doing uh, vasectomies and tubal ligations, and, and um, those weren't incredibly complicated surgeries even for that time. And I know, and I don't know if this was the process in Utah, but sometimes this would happen when women would give birth. They would just be sterilized and not, not even told. Yeah, or some other surgery, an appendectomy or something, um, uh, you know, the kind of, we're already in there, why not uh, snip another uh, uh, line while we're there? Oh. Um, Andrew, bring you back in here. Yes. We just mentioned this 1925 law, but it was amended by the, by the Utah legislature in the early 1960s to, instead of focusing on the genetics of people who could be sterilized, but instead force sterilization on people that were somehow judged to be unfit to parent. Who, who got to make that decision as who's unfit? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure how, how it worked back in the day, but um, today, the, uh, today um, the, uh, a request to do this would go before, uh, go before the court and evidence would be uh, presented to a judge, and uh, the judge would um, the judge would have to sign off on it. Okay, so some sort of legal procedure. Yeah. Um, Nate, do you think that was the case back in the day, or were kind of doctors winging it on their own in the institutions, or you do know, we know even? I I don't know. Um, my my suspicion is it, it. I don't think there was a court process um, that that it had to be adjudicated in any way. My suspicion is that it was more. Um, a determination made by those um, at the the institution. Yeah, at least, I don't know, Jim. Is that, that? Yeah, that's right. Whether it was sterilizations in the twenties and thirties, or even in the sixties and seventies, these happen in state institutions. And, and as Nate said, by and large, the discretion was left up to the administrators of these institutions to decide who, you know, initially was sort of unfit at the genetic level, or in the sixties and seventies. This, I would say. Um, to get to Andrew's point, a much more subjective quality of unfit to parent unfit as to the parent. new category. So we had either doctors or administrators or judges deciding who was unfit to parent and also maybe deciding who had the wrong genetic or mental disability or whatever. And now today, and I don't know if this comes up in your class today, but now we're seeing <laughs> this, the same legislature different people because it's a generation later, now they're making similar decisions in the reverse, like who's going to be forced to give birth? It seems like a rather remarkable turnaround in a generation. There is a cruel irony at the <laughs> center of all this, uh, no doubt. Oh. So, so earlier this month, this report came out, Nick. Yes. Victims of eugenic sterilization in Utah, cohort demographics, and estimate of living survivors. Jim, were you able to talk to any survivors? Can you characterize a case or two for us? I can certainly characterize a case or two. Uh, we were not able to talk to any survivors, and that was by design. Um, you know, we're dealing with an already vulnerable population, and then when you add something like sterilization on top of it, 
really need to be protective of privacy in these cases. And so we did team up with the uh, staff at the Utah State Developmental Center. They worked with us to give our team demographic information about the people that they knew were sterilized. So things like age, gender, race, um, when they were discharged, but they didn't give us any identifiable information Mm -hmm. like names. But there was research that was done by other people in the 30s and the 70s that did manage to uh, speak with people who who had been or were going to be sterilized. And you hear these just heartbreaking stories. Um, uh, You know, we opened the paper with a case where this woman essentially goes to, this girl goes to her local religious leader and says that she's being sexually assaulted by a family member. Rather than trying to address that problem, they send her to the Utah State Hospital, diagnose her as a moron, which was a a kind of clinical term at that time, sterilize her. They decide the problem solved, release her back to her family. And then that same religious leader says she's probably being sold as a prostitute. And, And that's a particularly awful story, but it is symptomatic of a theme that you see across this period of women in particular being sexually assaulted and the perceived solution being rather than trying to do something about the circumstances that are facilitating that to sterilize the women so that they don't get pregnant from the assault. And do nothing about the other. Hey, Andrew is the public policy advocate and you're hearing this here. Someone who speaks uh, regularly across the state and lobbies with lawmakers speaking up for folks living with disabilities. How did this report hit you, and what is it you want lawmakers to do as a result of this report? Um, as, I, as, I mentioned, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, this, um, uh, this, report, this report was, um, dis- was disturbing as well, uh, as, well as the, article, uh, the piece in the Tribune from a, from a year or two ago that um, noted that this uh, the, this practice uh, still occurs in small um, in small numbers today. So, um, what we are, um, what we, what Nate and I are hoping to do, um, going um, two th- two things. We are um, we are asking the um, uh, the governor and the and the legislature for an for an official apology. Um, but in a di- but in addition, we are uh, going to be um, pursuing a uh, we're going to be pursuing legislation that uh, would um, remove the remove this section of the code and and uh, make this practice illegal. So this wow. So <laughs> Nate, this is still on the books. So this would still be legally possible. Well, I, I think the the difference is today. Um, again, there there is a, a process. I mean, you have to go through a court process, so it's a little bit different. Um, up to my knowledge, it's not being sanctioned by the state. Um, I mean, in the in the sense that it's um, going on in institutions yeah. and the state is kind of pushing it. But but the practice of can a person. Um, essentially, have their ability to to reproduce, to to have that right, um, be taken away without their consent. Yes, um, I mean through a again, it's largely going to be um, from a guardian um, of a person with It'd a disability, be someone with power of and attorney, th- and they're yeah. gonna they're gonna move a court to to do this, and there will have to be evidence presented, and then their their right would be taken away. And 
Jim, this report, any any examination of other states and how Utah, I mean, we, we were talking how Utah was number one back in the late 1940s in sterilizations involuntarily done. Any research about what other states fared and how and what's going on there in terms of apologies or making up for past wrongs? Yeah, I appreciate that question. It's helpful to sort of remind ourselves that what we're talking about here today is about Utah, but it was a national and in some ways international phenomenon. Um, uh, over 30 states across the U.S. had some sort of sterilization law uh, uh, on, on the bills. Um, over 60,000 people were sterilized across the United States. And that goes from a state like California, where over 20,000 people were sterilized, to some states that even sort of passed a bill but never did anything yeah. with it. Utah in sterilizing, you know, uh, over that we know of 800 people is kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of how many were sterilized. Um, of those 30 states, very, very few have begun reckoning with that history. Um, uh, when the paper came out, a representative from the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees uh, the places that still exist where these sterilizations happened, did issue an apology. And, and I think it's worth um, saying that um, that right there puts Utah in sort of the small handful of states where you've got an official apology. But you can also look at places like North Carolina, which have gone for further and, and created compensation programs where they recognize that the state stole this and harmed their citizens with this awful procedure and then decided that, that the state owes them something in return. And so they're given money uh, when it's confirmed that they, were, that they were victimized by this. And an apology if not necessarily legally, but morally, does imply some sort of responsibility. It um, says we did we did wrong. Yeah. Um, in terms of this report, or maybe it's and maybe this is beyond the report, but any breakdown as to race in Utah? Very few people in the 830 cases that we looked at were categorized as non-white. I think it was like. A dozen or or, or fifteen, um, and that's you know largely a reflection of the just demographic makeup there. of of Utah. How about other states? Comparison. Uh, my fear would be that it was a whole lot easier maybe to sterilize people who were black and brown. You're, so when you move outside of Utah and you do uh. find states where there are are uh, larger um, communities of color, you do see exactly that. So in California, what they found was. Um, uh, Latino women in particular were sterilized more often than, than other groups. When you move to North Carolina, black women in particular are sterilized more often than other groups. And so you can see that, that racial component. Um, but, you know, the other thing to be mindful of to, you know, remind ourselves of the, the, the work of the Disability Law um, Center is that it was almost always people living with disabilities that were being sterilized as well. That's the kind of thing that cuts across race and gender. This this procedure targeted people that were deemed to be different in some way. Right. Easy easy pickings, I want to say. In terms of the Disability Law Center work, I guess, Nate, I'd throw this to you. Going forward, what would you like to see in Utah beyond an apology, or what are you advocating for up on the Hill? Well, I mean, I think as, as Andrew pointed out, I mean, I think obviously, um, I think we need to have a conversation about this practice being still on the books in Utah. The, again, it's it's a different practice. I want to be clear. Like, it's, yeah. it's not the exact same, but I think we, we want to have a conversation about um, that. But I think we can go beyond that. Um, I think there are a, a myriad of ways where people with disabilities have their rights and choices taken away from them even today. Um, and, and it may not be as, you know, as clear cut as 
um, you know, forcible sterilization. But um, there are a lot of ways with which people with disabilities have similar things happen. There's a similar mindset about people with disabilities still that persist today. Um, and I think that's something that Andrew and I and my, my colleagues who are filing lawsuits um, uh, are always what? pushing back against. So I, I, I think that's what we're we're faced up against is, is the the perception of people with disabilities in society. I mean, an awful lot of implicit bias when you see someone just raise their voice to talk to somebody in a wheelchair, yeah. right, as if they somehow can't hear. Well, in a few minutes we've got left here, there is this 2022 report. I want to ask about it, the dangers of institutional living. Certainly one of those dangers probably more so in the past than today, is to just be sterilized. Um, and in the in the age of COVID, of course, we saw all kinds of institutionalized people basically dying right and left. But in terms of 2022 in this report, what what should we highlight? <laughs> Lawsuit? Uh, uh, well, I mean, I think, the, you know, one thing we, we always look at um, at the Disability Law Center is we're, we're always looking for um, people being served in integrated settings. So in community-based settings, um, those are preferred over institutional living. There are harms of institutionalization. Um, we, we, we have sued the state over um, you know, people being forced into institutional living in the past. Um, I think what we're always trying to encourage the legislature to do, um, you know, state agency folks, is say, you know, let's look for ways for people with disabilities to be served in the community so they can do what everyone else does. Um, there are models and ways to do that. Um, and you know, those, those are some of the things we're pushing up on the Hill this year. Um, so, you know, I, are there effective work programs and whatnot that the state supports for folks with disabilities? Uh, like programs for people that like to have jobs. Yeah, to and, have jobs, gainful um, employment, and there are. Um, I, I mean, just I, wondered. I mean, I how think we fair. Um, I I think there are improvements that could be made, yeah. um, and there there are some federal regulations that have gone in that have have made changes and things of that nature. So, um, you know, again, I, I think things are better. Um, but you two, Nate and Andrew. You've got a show on Facebook, <laughs> I want to call it, where you have been regularly posting about what's been going on in this legislative session. So, Andrew, hits and misses as we barrel toward the close of this session. Sure. Um, just very quickly, I think there uh, we've been focused on um, three areas this session. Uh, one, it, one is uh, talking about the, the need for um, afford deeply affordable and accessible housing as uh, the core to make as the foundation to people being able to be in uh, to be in the community successfully and um, then then we all as you know Laura we always uh, talk about the need for uh, funding and services for the division of services uh, for people with disabilities and the and the waiting list that goes along with that and then um, the other, um, those, uh, the other piece of that is we have over the last several years, we've been, uh, laser focused on the need to, um, to talk about folks with, uh, serious mental illness beyond, uh, beyond the idea that, um, folks are always in crisis. What do we need to, what do we need to do? To put in to put in place and around them so that they um, so that we um, that uh, they don't find them they don't find themselves in crisis or once they are sta or once they are stabilized um, they have uh, they have somewhere to go and services to wrap around them to to make sure that they don't experience another crisis. 
All right, we have two minutes left. Nate, your hits and misses and what you're looking for these last couple days. Um, I think our, honestly, I'm going to take our big miss is, um, you know, this year we tried to get um, a bill that would have codified what are called supported decision-making agreements. As we were talking about earlier, the ways with which people with disabilities have their their rights taken away. One of those is guardianship, Um, you know, that they lose the right to make choices about their own lives. So we had um, hopes to get a bill this year that would have codified a practice that that made those agreements um, recognized in state code um, that would have allowed people to make their own decisions. Um, unfortunately, that's not going to happen this year, though. Andrew and I um, are going to uh, keep pushing for it. Um, but I think, you know, as Andrew said, we've been pretty focused on getting some funding um, and some attention around that, that community-based living for people with serious mental illness. Um, I think we've had at least a minor success. We found out today um, some funding for assertive community treatment teams um, that will at least get a few in the state to provide some of those wraparound services Andrew was talking about. Um, but, you know, I we could, Andrew, you know, if you really want to know, just watch Andrew and I um, on our policy <laughs> corner. Um, we'll tell you everything you need to know oh, about what we'll we're watching. We'll put it in the show notes so folks can catch up on it. We'd love to have you back and dig into uh, the session a bit deeper yeah. and bring some other folks to the microphone that want to share their stories. Sound yeah. good? What's the website? Uh, disabilitylawcenter.org um, is our website. If you want to check out Andrew and I, you can go to disabilitylawcenter.org slash public-policy. And Jim has a book coming out, right? Yeah, Jim Tabory, thank you for being with us tonight. You're a professor in the Department of Philosophy up at the U. Your second book, Tyranny of the Gene. Tyranny of the Gene. Tell we us. come back when it comes out? What's I'd it love to, yeah, August. Yeah. It's about how the legacy of many of the things we've been talking about today, eugenics, the idea that genes are behind everything, that uh, the solution to complex problems or quick biological fixes uh, uh, is not just something from the past, that it continues to, to shape uh, the healthcare that's out there now. Oh, we'd love to talk about that. It's so interesting that even disabilities seem to be on a hierarchy, right? If you're blind, there seems to be all kinds of help. But if you're in a wheelchair, good luck getting over the curb on the street in many places. Uh, it's CRISPR, a challenge. I really want to pick your brain about oh. CRISPR and this whole conversation. But everyone, thank you so much. Andrew Wiggle, thanks for joining by Zoom. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. And Nate Krippus and Jim Tabory, thank you so much. Nick Burns, another great show. And you're reading another book on eugenics that we're going to bring to the show later. Yeah, this is Adam Rutherford's new book, Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. He is a scientist. He has a number of books out. He's from England, so we'll have to zoom him in. But very interesting. He's not afraid to be a bit of a political activist as well as a scientist. So I look forward to that conversation upcoming. And that is Radioactive. Nick Burns, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Democracy Now! is next.